believers are to be hearers and doers of the word of truth. Specifically, being a doer of the word means obeying the perfect law of liberty. Now, obeying is more than lip service. It is serving God in obedience to his law. James addressed three areas of the law with which we struggle. Controlling our tongues, caring for the helpless, and constraining ourselves from worldliness. The worthlessness or genuineness of our religion can be determined by how we obey God in these three areas. As such, James devotes the remainder of his epistle to these three issues. Notably in chapter 2, his focus is upon caring for the helpless. Now already James has admonished us regarding the injustice of partiality. And now in the remainder of chapter 2, he goes a step further and informs us that not only does caring for the helpless prove the genuineness of our religion, it also informs us as to whether we merely profess faith or if we possess faith. And as such, James demonstrates what partiality says about one's faith in James 2, 14-16. Failure to care for the helpless is evidence that one's faith is either dead or demonic. However, those who care for the helpless have active or dynamic faith. Now the issue then that James drives home is that obedience to God's law is evidence that your faith is either dead, demonic, or dynamic. He draws on Jesus' teaching on faith and works in Matthew 7, 21-23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. These were people who professed faith, but did not possess faith, as evidenced by their transgression or lawlessness, that is, their disobedience to God's law. Now in essence, James is countering the false philosophy known as antinomianism. Antinomianism comes from two terms, anta, against or without, and nomos, law, meaning lawlessness, anomia. The goal of antinomianism is to undermine and repeal God's law. Antinomians claim that because of God's grace, we are freed from obeying God's law. Now while God's law is not the means of salvation, we are still obligated to obey it as a rule of life. 1 John 5, 3. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. See, my friends, there are two major issues with antinomianism. First, by teaching that believers are free from the law, antinomianism takes the biblical teaching, namely that God's law does not save, to an unbiblical conclusion. And second, by removing God's law, Antinomianism results in spiritual anarchy. Such anarchy has reared its head in the idea that you as a Christian can live in habitual sin and yet still be forgiven. According to R.C. Sproul, the song of the antinomianism is free from the law, O blessed condition. I can sin all I want and still have remission. In reality, what antinomianism has produced is an entire generation of professing Christians who are still dead in sin. As Sinclair Ferguson states in The Whole Christ, quote, the wholesale removal of the law seems to provide a refuge for the antinomianism. 
But the problem is not the law, but that the heart remains unchanged. And so in James 2, 14-26, James explains what partiality says about your faith. It's either dead, demonic, or dynamic. Chapter 2, verse 14-17. to 17. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, if faith has no works, it is dead being by itself. Partiality or failure to care for the helpless demonstrates a faith that is dead. A faith that is dead. James begins with a question. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but has no works? Now the verb use, aphelos, refers to a benefit or advantage. James wants you to consider the benefits or advantages of having faith but no works. Now the verb says, lego, means to state an opinion. It's in the present tense implying that this individual reported, repeatedly rather, claims to have faith. The present tense of the verb has, echo, has faith but has no works, indicates that this individual continuously lacks works to support his claims of faith. Now the term works, ergon, refers to deeds or actions which conform to God's law. James 1, 22 and 25, Prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. One who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become an effect forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. See, this lack of works or deeds conforming to God's law, we'll call it obedience, is evidence bearing witness that such a one does not possess genuine faith. You need to consider whether you're obedient to God's law. And what does your obedience say about your faith? Now James questions whether faith, which continuously lacks deeds or works conforming to God's law, actually saves. Can that faith save him? The grammatical structure of the question requires a negative response. No. Such faith cannot save him. Now let's be clear here that James is not espousing the idea that salvation is by works and not by faith. No. James is affirming that faith must produce good works, i.e. obedience, and the lack of such works proves that such faith is dead. Paul stated in Ephesians 2, 9 and 10 that while people have been saved through faith, not as a result of works, ergon, they have been saved for good works, ergon, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. You see, Paul's point, my friend, is that while works, ergon, same as what James, same word James uses, while works do not save, believers, we have been saved to do good works. And these works were prepared beforehand or in eternity past. And furthermore, we are expected to walk or behave in conformity to these good works. So you ask yourself, what are these good works established in eternity past to which we are to conform our behavior? In Titus 2.14, Paul answers, he says that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, Ergon, 
and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, sell us for good deeds, Aragon. Notice the term deed and deeds translates the Greek term Aragon, otherwise translated as works. If you have been saved from every lawless deed or work, so that you can be zealous for good deeds or work, then it stands to reason that good deeds are the opposite of lawless deeds. Hence, good deeds are lawful deeds, or deeds which conform to God's law. Now, the lack of works to which James refers are caring for the helpless, as demonstrated with his illustration. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Now, this illustration is based upon the royal law. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus 19.18. Again, James focuses on our responsibility to care for the helpless. That he focuses again on the mistreatment or the neglect of the helpless indicates that it was an all-too-common occurrence amongst believers to whom he wrote. And sadly, mistreatment and neglect of the helpless is an all-too-common problem today amongst believers. Now notice in his illustration, he presents an individual who's in need. This brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food. By mentioning brother or sister, he demonstrates that believers have an obligation to people irrespective of their biological sex. This was key in a culture where women were often viewed contemptuously. James' point is that help should not be withheld based upon one's biological sex. As well, this is not to say that the scripture is approving of various sexual identities. Brother and sister, as used in scripture, identifies those who are biologically male or female. In a culture in which there is so much confusion about sexual identity and gender, believers cannot approve of such lifestyles which God calls indecent. Nevertheless, we still have a God-given responsibility to share the gospel with them and to minister to their needs, especially if they are amongst the helpless. Now, James states that they are without clothing and daily food. Without clothing means naked and ill-dressed. In need of daily food implies that they lacked sufficient food to sustain life. In other words, they're cold and hungry. As well, the lack of clothing and food implies that they were homeless. Now, notice in the illustration, the response to those in need is to simply reply, Go in peace, be warmed and filled. That phrase, go in peace, is a common Jewish blessing, meaning, I wish you well, or may God bless you. 1 Samuel 1.17, Eli answered and said, go in peace. 2 Samuel 15.9, the king said to him, go in peace. Mark 5.34, Jesus said to her, go in peace. Now regarding the response to go in peace, Luke Timothy Johnson states, it is not the form of the statement that is reprehensible, but it's functioning as a religious cover for the failure to act. Let me ask you something. How often have you used Christian jargon or biblical talk to excuse yourselves from your responsibilities, particularly maybe even caring for the helpless? If you're using Christian jargon or biblical language to neglect your biblical responsibility, you are reprehensible. 
as well, while the phrase, be warmed and filled, might acknowledge the needs of the helpless, it doesn't meet their need. What good does it do for someone who is hurting or helpless to tell them, don't worry, God will provide. Now, it is true that God will provide. But have you ever considered, have you ever stopped to think that God may be meeting the need of a helpless individual through you? God places the responsibility of caring for the helpless squarely upon the shoulders of people, particularly believers. Galatians 6, 1 and 10. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. So then while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now, the underlying basis of James' illustration comes from Jesus himself in Matthew 25, 35 to 46. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not invite me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we not see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. You see, my friends, according to Jesus, caring for the helpless is the manifestation of your faith. These deeds of compassion provide the criteria to judge whether or not your faith is dead or alive. And if you possess a faith that produces good work, such as caring for the helpless, you're going to enter the kingdom of God. But if you possess dead faith, if you possess a faith that produces no works, if you fail to care for the helpless, you will be cast into hell. And so I challenge you, friends, to consider what kind of faith you have according to Christ's criteria. James goes on to say that even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. Even so, hutos kai means in the same way. He uses it to make the point or the application of the illustration. The point of the illustration is that talking about compassion without actually displaying compassion is a failure to obey God's law. Faith that is all words and no works is dead. And he reasserts that faith without obedience to God's word is dead. That term dead, necros, means inactive and inoperative. 
When the term dead is joined to the term works, it describes something which is not of faith, but is fruitless and sinful. The phrase being by itself identifies their faith as nothing more than an empty profession. True saving faith or dynamic faith is actively obedient to God's word. So partiality or failure to care for the helpless demonstrates a faith that is dead and also a faith that is demonic. A faith that is demonic. Verses 18 and 19. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works. I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Now James sarcastically puts forth another argument by referring to the ever-present someone. How often in an argument has it been said, well, someone told me, or someone doesn't think that. This someone says to James, you have faith and I have works. This verse presents one of the most challenging passages in the New Testament. Now the problem derives from the fact that there are no punctuation marks in the Greek manuscript to indicate where the quote begins and ends. Most English translations can find the quote to you have faith and I have works. The next translational issue arises from the pronouns you and I. You have faith and I have works. The Greek pronouns here are not specifically identifying James and his opponent. Instead, the pronouns are being used to differentiate between two different positions. The argument could then be translated as, one person has faith and another has works. So the gist of the argument is that faith and works are separate objects that have no bearing on one another. James rebuts this argument. Show me your faith without the works. I'll show you my faith by my works. Now the verb show me means to make visible or prove. James' point is that faith is not visible on its own. Faith is like the wind. In order to perceive it, you have to be able to see its effects. And hence, he challenges the antagonist to prove his faith. James' works, or obedience to God's law, demonstrates his faith, proves his faith. What evidence does this someone have to, be, to put forth? The answer is none. He has nothing by which to prove whether his faith is worthless or genuine. James takes his argument a step further by comparing this person's faith to the faith of demons. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe in shudder. Interestingly, James alludes to Deuteronomy 6.4. The Lord is our God, the Lord is one. This statement is known as the Shema, the fundamental doctrine of the Scripture. It was the first doctrinal truth that God commanded parents to teach their children. Now, the first doctrinal truth to teach your children is the existence and unipolarity of God. Unipolarity means there is a plurality within the Godhead, and this plurality acts as one. In Deuteronomy 6.4, the name Lord, Yahweh, is singular, while God's title, Elohim, is plural. Also, when the term one is used to join two objects, Yahweh and Elohim, it shows a plurality of persons within a oneness. Psalm 33 verse 6 confirms three persons in the Godhead, the Lord, the Word, and the breath. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. Now the term Lord is the personal name of Elohim, Yahweh. The word of the Lord is none other than Jesus, the Son of God. And the term spirit in Hebrew, Ruach, 
can also be translated as breath. Thus the breath of his mouth is the Holy Spirit. These three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, are one God. That they are one means that all three persons equally share the same essence and divine attributes. And this belief in one God is known as monotheism. James affirms that even the demons or fallen angels are monotheistic. Like those who claim to have faith without works, the demons believe in God's existence and oneness. Now the verb believe, pistuo, means to accept as true and have faith in something. These demons have faith in God so much so that they shudder. The verb shudder, friso, means to tremble convulsively. As well, it's in the present tense, meaning they are continuously convulsing and trembling before God. But despite their faith, and even trembling in God's presence, their faith does not result in obedience to God's law. James' point, then, is that doctrine in and of itself is good, but knowing doctrine is not proof of genuine faith. How many possess accurate theology but live in a manner inconsistent with their profession. C.L. Mitten states, It is a good thing to possess an accurate theology, but it is unsatisfactory unless that good theology also possesses us. Satan and his demons know doctrinal truths, and even tremble before such truths. Yet, their faith is worthless. Doctrinal truth without obedience to God's law is worthless. See, believer, you can quote scripture and you can know theology. But if you are not obeying God's law, like, for example, you're neglecting the helpless, then your faith is demonic and such faith is not going to get you into heaven. Is your faith dead? Or is your faith demonic? There is another option. See, in contrast to dead demonic faith, there is a faith that is dynamic. By dynamic, it is a faith that is active or zealous. Chapter 2, verse 20 to 26. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled which says, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. James is challenging us to recognize the fallacy of worthless religion, which is all words and no works. See, worthless religion is all Bible talk, but no genuine service to God. And besides loving God with all one's heart, strength, mind, and soul, we are to love one another as Christ loves others. That's sacrificial love. It goes out of its way to minister to the needs of the helpless, the orphans, the widows, the immigrants, the poor, and the disabled. And failure to care for the helpless demonstrates that your religion is worthless and your faith is either dead or demonic. Now James begins here with a question. Are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? That verb willing, fellow, means to 
desire something. To recognize, gnosko means to know by experience. The question implies that some professed believers, perhaps some of you, are unwilling to know whether your faith is dead, demonic, or dynamic. You got your head in the sand. And the one who claims to have faith but no works is a foolish fellow. The term foolish, kenos, refers to something empty or defective. You see, my friend, if you believe that you can have faith and not obey the perfect law, such as caring for the helpless, you are empty-headed and defective. And if you continue to hold such a belief, you're self-deluded. You're self-deceived. Furthermore, faith without works is useless. The term useless, argos, refers to something barren or unproductive or not working. James is employing a little wordplay. The term argos is the negative of ergon. Hence he's stating that faith without works is not working. That it does not work implies that such faith has no benefit or advantage. Dynamic faith, though, is faith that works, and as such, it is beneficial because it justifies. James completes his argument for a dynamic faith by providing three illustrations. Abraham, Rahab, and a spiritless body. These three illustrations form the ninth triad in this epistle. The first illustration of dynamic faith is Abraham. Abraham's faith was dynamic because his works or obedience justified it. Abraham's introduced as our father. Abraham is the father of the Jewish people and of all those who have genuine faith. Galatians 3, 7 and 29. Therefore be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. Now the question, was not Abraham our father justified by works, is rhetorical and demands a positive response. That works justified Abraham should not be misunderstood though. James has already made clear that salvation is a gift of God's grace. James 1, 17-18 Every good thing and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Furthermore, James quotes Genesis 15, 16, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. The verb believed, pistuo, means to accept something as true, and place one's faith in it. It's the same verb used earlier concerning the demons and those people whose faith does not work. You see, the moment Abraham placed his faith in God's promises, he was saved. While Genesis 15, 6 records his conversion, the event itself occurred in Genesis 12, when Abraham responded to God's call and left Ark. James points out that the difference between Abraham's faith and the faith of demons and others is that Abraham's faith works. Thus the phrase, justified by works, does not refer to salvation in this context. The verb justified, dekao, means to judicially vindicate someone who complies with the requirements of the law, specifically God's law. That justified is not used in the context of salvation is further clarified in the statement when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar. That's Genesis 22. Abraham's willingness to sacrifice Isaac occurred almost 35 years after Abraham was declared righteous. Being willing to offer Isaac as a sacrifice was an act of obedience to God's command. Such obedience judicially vindicated the reality of his faith before God. Thus, the statement justified by works is not justification for salvation, 
but justification, that is salvation, was real. And it's notable in the Old Testament, the thrust of such justification was to be declared right or innocent at the final judgment. Isaiah 43, verse 9. All the nations have gathered together so that the peoples may be assembled. Who among them can declare this and proclaim to us the former things? Let them present their witnesses that they may be justified. Isaiah 45, 25. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel will be justified and will glory. Now, there is another justification, a justification by faith. In Galatians 3.24, Paul says that the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. That is, God's law condemns sinners but also points them to their need of the Savior. Nonetheless, God's law cannot save. Abraham was not saved by keeping the law but by believing the promise. When Abraham believed God about the promise, he was justified by faith. That is, Abraham was justified before God. God judicially vindicated Abraham and declared him righteous in his estimation. When Abraham obeyed God, his faith was justified or proven. As such, when Abraham stands before God in judgment, he'll be declared innocent. So Abraham was justified before God by both faith and works. Genuine believers today are justified both by faith and works. See, at the moment of our salvation, seeing faith, God justified you, the repentant sinner. And following your salvation, you live in conformity to God's law and are therefore justified by your works or obedience. You see, there is a soteriological justification and an eschatological justification. Soteriological justification is by faith and deems one righteous. Eschatological justification is by works and declares you innocent. Soteriological justification occurs in the present. Eschatological justification occurs in the future. And for the believer at the judgment seat of Christ. Now the verb see in James 2.22, blepo, provides the logical conclusion to James' illustration. That is, Abraham's faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. The verb working with, synergio, means to cooperate. It pictures two objects working together towards a goal or accomplishment. Abraham's faith and works cooperated together to accomplish a goal. His faith was not mere intellectual assent to facts. It was dynamic, actively producing and partnering with works. And the result of this partnership was that Abraham's faith was perfected. Perfected, tiliao, means to be complete or brought to a goal. The passive tense of this verb implies that this partnership with works brought Abraham's faith towards its intended goal. James 2.23 reveals what the cooperation between faith and works accomplished. First, faith reckoned Abraham as righteous. James again quotes Genesis 15.6. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That verb reckoned, legizomai, means to impute or credit something to one's account that does not belong to them. Abraham placed his faith in God. God credited his account with righteousness. That is, Abraham was justified by faith. He was declared righteous in God's sight. And God imputes Christ's righteousness to every believer at salvation. So Abraham's faith reckoned him 
to him as righteousness. Second, Abraham's works, i.e. obedience, enabled him to be called the friend of God. Now James' reference to Abraham as the friend of God is an allusion to two Old Testament passages. 2 Chronicles 20, verse 7, and Isaiah 41, 8. In 2 Chronicles 20, verse 7, Jehoshaphat asked God if indeed he had given the land to the descendants of Abraham, your friend, forever. In Isaiah 41, 8, God declared that he had chosen Israel, the descendants of Abraham, my friend. Both the Greek term philos and the Hebrew term ahib translate as friend and refers to one who is beloved or the object of love. Hence, Abraham was the object of God's love. On account of his obedience or works, Abraham was given privileged status before God. And Jesus confirms that the key to friendship with God is obedience to his commands. John 15, 14. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Now James began this pericope in verse 14 with a question. What use is it if someone says he has faith but has no works? After setting forth Abraham as an example, James answers the initial question in verse 24. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. That verb you see, blepo, provides the logical conclusion to his question. Justified by works implies that one's works, that is your obedience to God's law, is evidence that one possesses dynamic faith. So friend, let me ask you, have you been justified by faith? And have you been justified by works? Now that phrase in the same way, homoios in verse 25, suggests that Rahab is the second illustration of dynamic faith. James notes that Rahab was a harlot, pornet, or a prostitute. Now why would James choose a woman of ill repute as an example of genuine faith? Well, I believe first, the inclusion of a prostitute as an example of faith demonstrates that salvation is available to all. Second, the Jews considered both Abraham and Rahab as proselytes or foreigners who identified with Israel. Again, we've got to remember, Abraham was a Gentile called out of the land of Ur. He was not a Jew, though his descendants became Jews. And third, both Abraham and Rahab were tested by death. For Abraham, he had to believe that God would provide a substitute for his son or that God would raise his son from the dead. Rahab had to believe that God would save her and her family from death when he destroyed the city of Jericho. And fourth, in early Christian writings, Abraham and Rahab are models of faith and hospitality. According to Clement of Rome, on account of his faith and hospitality, a son was given to him in his old age. On account of her faith and hospitality, Rahab the harlot was saved. You see, like Abraham, Rahab was justified by works. Specifically, two works prove the reality of her faith. One, she received the messengers. Joshua 2, 1-14. By welcoming the two spies, she committed treason against her country. And two, she sent them out by another way. Joshua 2, 15-22. The verb sent out, ekbalo, means to drive out and implies a sense of urgency. By another way refers to letting the spies out through her window by rope. In doing so, she demonstrated her care for their safety. She protected them because she had faith in their God. And her faith was evidenced by her willingness to obey God and protect his people. James' final illustration is that of a spiritless body. As the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. When the spirit departs the body, the body is dead. 
And just as the body is dependent upon the spirit of life, so faith is dependent upon obedience to be deemed active or dynamic. Otherwise, faith without obedience is deemed dead or demonic. So what does partiality say about your faith, believer? Partiality or discrimination is just one area that reveals whether your faith is dead, demonic, or dynamic. See, if you're not caring for the helpless, for example, your faith is possibly dead. You've got to examine whether you're obeying God's perfect law of liberty. Remember, failure to obey just one law is equivalent to disobeying them all. And if your life is marked by continual disobedience to any of God's law, then your faith is indeed dead. And I would challenge you to take note and repent. Friends, perhaps you can quote scripture, you know the Bible, but you continually disobey God's law even if it's just one, then your faith is, is demonic. Demonic. You see, the demons know Scripture better than you, and their faith is still worthless. Believer, beware. You can know the Bible, and believe me, knowing the Bible is important. But if you continue to disobey God's law, what good did all the Bible knowledge accomplish? Not a bit. My friend, when you are confronted with God's law, and hear it and do it, then your faith is dynamic. Your faith is alive and genuine. And the proof of such dynamic faith is seen in deeds of compassion performed upon the helpless. I pray that Jesus will examine your deeds and say, Well done. Enter into my kingdom. Let's pray. Father and gracious God, we thank you for this challenge that you've laid out before us to examine our faith, to consider what perhaps our care or lack of care for the helpless says about our faith. Father, someone's sitting here and has come to the realization that their faith is dead, that, Lord, they're looking at their life and they see habitual, continual disobedience to you, to your word, to your law. That, Father God, you prevent them might give them repentance and true, genuine, saving faith. That, Father, they would leave behind their profession and go on and possess genuine faith. Father God, I pray perhaps there are some that are here, Lord, listening. And, Father, they are being challenged that their faith is demonic. They know the Bible, they can quote the Scripture. But yet... They're continually disobeying you, perhaps even in that area, Lord. Perhaps in caring for the helpless or not caring for the helpless. And Lord, I pray that if they're acknowledging their faith is demonic, God, give them repentance. That they may forsake this faith and may embrace a true and genuine faith, a saving faith, Lord, that will produce and, and participate with works, good works, obedience. Father God, I pray for each and every true, genuine believer, Father, who not only hears the word but does the word, that, Father, you would encourage them, you would continue to build them up so that they may know indeed that their faith is genuine, that it is dynamic. And, Lord, what a day we look forward to to when those of us of dynamic faith will hear. Well done. Enter into my kingdom. We pray this in your precious Son's name. Amen.